We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Our special guest today is Kim Scott, New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Just Work, How to Root Out Bias, Prejudice, and Bullying to Build a Kick-Ass Culture of Inclusivity and Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity, and co-founder of the company Radical Candor. Kim was a CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and other tech companies. She was a member of the faculty at Apple University, and before that led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick's teams at Google. Prior to that, Kim managed a pediatric clinic in Kosovo and started a diamond-cutting factory in Moscow. She lives with her family in Silicon Valley. What I appreciate most about you, Kim, is your approachability and how generously you share what you know to help us be better. You tell your stories and frameworks in a way that's effective and memorable. Welcome to ROG, Kim. Thank you so much. And thank you for the gratitude. You uh, you practice what you preach. Yes, I mean it. I Really, I've been a fan of yours forever, so I'm fangirling a bit. But I'm, <laughs> And I'm excited to get to share your wisdom with our listeners and to connect with you personally. So why don't we just start with some of your background, Kim? Sure. Uh, you know, I started out uh, studying Russian literature. was not clear what I was going to do with <laughs> with that. And I sort of had this idea that business was boring uh, early in my career. And I realized that it was more interesting than I had understood when I had to hire people uh, in order to start up this diamond cutting factory. And I thought it was going to be easy. I thought I'd just pay them and they'll come work for me. And it turned out that they didn't just want money. Uh, we had a picnic and, and then by the time we got to the bottom of a bottle of vodka, I realized what they really wanted was to know that their boss cared about them enough to get them out of Russia if things went sideways there. And as you can imagine, since the invasion of Ukraine, I've been thinking a lot about these guys and they were all guys. And that was the moment though, that I realized that, that, management was really about relationships. And that was the moment when Mm. management became interesting Mm. to me. Oh my gosh. And you've carried that through your career. Yeah. Yeah. After that, I left. I went to business school. I did a few failed startups. Uh, Then I got a job at Google that worked a lot better. And uh, and I got to the point uh, at Google where I realized that the thing that I really cared about was not cost per click, although that was going pretty well there, but really thinking through how can you build a team on which everyone can do the best work of their lives and enjoy, if not love, working together. And uh, and a professor of mine from business school had left Harvard and joined Apple, and Steve Jobs had decided he wanted to throw away all their management training and start from a blank piece of paper. And so I left Google and joined Apple to do that at, as part of Apple University and uh, and then a friend of mine from Google became the CEO of Twitter, and he asked me to help him build a management training 
course for uh, a Twitter that was Dick Costello, not the current. <laughs> I would not be coaching the current CEO of X. <laughs> and, uh, and then I wound up writing, helping him develop that course is what inspired me to write Radical Candor and, uh, and to do what I'm doing now. So that's it in a nutshell. That's amazing. And that is your passion is writing, right? Yeah. Yes. My whole business career was one giant plan to subsidize my novel writing habit. So <laughs> I'm finally doing what I wanted to do. And we all benefit from that because, you know, we may not all have the privilege of working at Apple or Google, but we do get the privilege of learning from you through your writing. So thank you for that. And, you know, your book, Radical Candor, has just stood the test of time. It has, it, it was amazing when it came out and it still is. So for those who are familiar with the Quadrant model, let's give them a refresher for those who haven't heard it yet, but are going to be inspired to buy the book. Um, please just walk us through that model so we can understand what you mean. Sure. So radical candor is what happens when you care personally and challenge directly at the same time. So if you think about it in terms of a two-by-two framework, on the vertical line, there's care personally. On the horizontal line, there's challenge directly. In the upper right-hand quadrant is radical candor. It's interesting to think not only about what radical candor is, but also what it isn't. So sometimes we remember to challenge directly, but we forget to show we care personally. And that I call obnoxious aggression. And a first draft of the book, I called it the asshole quadrant because, I don't know, it seemed more, uh, more direct. But I stopped doing that for a very important reason. I found that when I did that, people would use the framework to start writing names and boxes. And I beg of you, as I go through the rest of the, of the quadrants, don't use this framework that way. It's not another Myers-Briggs personality test. Use this framework like a compass to guide specific conversations with specific people to a better place. Now, obnoxious aggression is a big problem. It's a big problem because it hurts people. It's also a big problem because it's inefficient. It's a waste of breath. When you act like a jerk, the other person goes into fight or flight mode, and then they literally cannot hear what you're saying. But it's also a problem for a more subtle reason, because I don't know about you, but for me, when I realize I've landed in the obnoxious aggression quadrant, when I realize I've acted like a jerk, it's not my instinct to go the right way on care personally. Instead, it's my instinct to go the wrong way on challenge directly. And then I wind up in the worst place of all, manipulative insincerity. So if obnoxious aggression is front stabbing, manipulative insincerity is backstabbing. It's passive aggressive behavior, political behavior, all of the things that make a workplace most toxic. And obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity are kind of fun to talk about because that's where the drama is. If you watch The Office or, or the HBO show Silicon Valley, you're going to see a lot of episodes about those, those behaviors. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of us make the vast majority of our mistakes in this last quadrant, the upper left-hand quadrant. This is what happens when you do remember to show that you care personally, because it turns out most people are actually pretty kind people. So you do remember to show that you care personally, but you're so worried about not upsetting or offending the other person that you fail to tell them something they'd be better off knowing in the long run. And this is what I call ruinous empathy. And so much of what I did in Radical Candor was to try to help people move away from ruinous empathy towards Radical Candor, which is 
more kind in the long run. You can you can think of it as compassionate candor, if that's a better way for you to think about it. Oh, thank you for that. And you know, with all three of those quadrants, there's little to no change that takes place. Yeah, yeah. And obnoxious aggression, there's so much fear that it's hard to change. With ruinous empathy, there's, you know, you can feel in that quadrant if if you're not getting any any critical feedback and and yet you know something's wrong, that doesn't feel good either. That hardly feels psychologically safe. It can feel like being sort of a dead person walking. And manipulative insincerity is where real mistrust uh, creeps in. That's, I think, the most toxic of all the behaviors. Mm, oh my gosh. So helpful. So... You said to use this as a compass. And the way I've used this model personally is when something doesn't go well, (laughs) I check myself in the quadrants and I say, you know, was I caring personally enough? Was I challenging directly enough? And maybe according to me, I was, but perhaps a word choice or a tone or something might have slipped me into one of the other quadrants, you know, that how I was being perceived. Um, but how do you use it? Like, how do you practically apply this this quadrant view? Yeah, I think that that one of the things that is helpful is to remember that radical candor gets measured not at the speaker's mouth, but at the listener's ear. And so when I say something, for, the first thing I do is I try to remember like nine times out of 10, the radical candor is actually going to be much less scary than it feels. The person's going to say, oh yeah, thank you for pointing it out. It's no big deal. However, I want to acknowledge like one time out of 10, you you may uh, get a response that you're not hoping to get. And so if the other person seems sad or mad, that's my cue to move up on the care personally dimension uh, to Mm -hmm. to say, you know, it's... uh, I feel like I wasn't, I I wasn't, uh, I didn't say that in the best way. How could I say this better? To remind the person, like, I'm saying this thing not because I'm trying to kick you in the shins, but because I want, I want to help you get better. I'm, I'm trying to be helpful. So just eliminate the phrase, don't take it personally from your vocabulary, because it's, it's okay. If the other person is sad or mad, it doesn't mean they're unprofessional. It means they care about their work and that's all for the good. However, other times, the other way in which it can go wrong is the person is just brushing me off. I've worked up my courage to say the thing and now they're like, oh yeah, it's no big deal. And now I have to move out further than I may be comfortable going on the challenge directly dimension. And this is really hard. I don't know who it is who said the biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it has happened. <laughs> and so sometimes you, you say the thing and you really do say it, but it hasn't penetrated. And so you've got, you've, you've got to say it again in a different way. And that is really tricky. I'll, I'll give you an example of this <laughs> when... Early in my career at Google, I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO about how the AdSense business was doing. I walked into the room, and there in one corner is the CEO who's like doing his emails, like his brain has been plugged into the machine. And there in the other corner of the room is one of the founders on an elliptical trainer stepping away wearing toe shoes and a bright blue spandex unitard, super tight. Not what I was expecting, or frankly, wanting to see in the room. And so now I've got to figure out, you know, how to get these people's attention. And probably like you in such a situation, I was a little bit nervous. 
Luckily, the AdSense business was on fire. When I said how many new customers, it was like a lot of rah-rah. So I'm feeling like the meeting's going all right. In fact, I now believe I'm a genius. And I walked out of the room, I walked past my boss, and I'm expecting a high five or a, or a pat on the back. And instead, she says, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, oh, wow, I messed something up. And she said, you said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And with this, I kind of breathed a huge sigh of relief and I'm, and I'm sort of made a brush off gesture with my hand. So now I'm not listening uh, and she's measuring her feedback at the listener's ear. So she tries again and she says, I know this great speech coach. I'm sure Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I kind of make this brush off gesture with my hand. I'm like, no, I'm busy. I got all these new customers. I don't have time for a speech coach. So now she realizes she's going to have to go further yet out on the challenge directly to mention. And she says, I can tell when you do that thing with your hand, I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now she's got my full attention. And some people might say it was mean of her to say I sounded stupid, but it wasn't. She was using the framework in the right way. She was noticing that I wasn't hearing and she kept going on the challenge directly dimension until she used the words that did get my attention. And it's important to note, she never would have used those words with other people on her team who were perhaps a better listener than I was. But with me, she knew me well enough to know those were the words she had to use in order to get through to me, in order to be clear, in order to really challenge me directly. And so that's an example of using the framework to figure out, do I need to say it again even more clearly? Do I need to challenge even more directly? Or do I need to pause and pay attention to this person's emotional response? Because when we communicate, we communicate on kind of an intellectual level and on an emotional level at the same time. And you've got to pay mm. attention to both. Such a great example. Thank you for sharing that. Do you find that most people won't continue to go out on that challenge personally continuum? They'll think, I had the courage to say it once. Yeah, if- yes. Saying it again is really hard. Uh, and it's really uncomfortable. And it's the most one of the most common management mistakes that gets made is you say it once and you and you let yourself off the hook so when i was at one point when i was a leader and some version of this would happen to me you know on a daily basis where some someone who worked for me would talk about a problem they were having with someone on their team and i said well did you talk to that person and they'd say, yeah, of course, I, you know, that's my job. I talk to that person. And then I'd bump into that person. I'd say, oh, I hear such and such. How's that going? And they look at me like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? This is, the first, this is the first I'm hearing of it. And it wasn't that the other person hadn't said it, but they hadn't said it clearly enough. One time I was in a room of CEOs, and every single one of those CEOs had a story about a time when they had fired someone and they were trying to be nice when they, you know, they were trying to be kind, they were trying to do this with compassion, but they said it so unclearly that the person didn't know they had gotten fired. And one CEO had a story about this person came back in their office, you know, two hours later and said, did you fire me back then? And he, you know, he clutches his head. He said, oh, you know, I so dreaded the conversation. You know, another, the worst I heard was uh, a CEO fired someone and at the end of the day sent a note out to the whole company saying this person is no longer with us. 
And the person shows up at work again the next morning, had no idea they had been, which was way harder for that person, way harder for the company, way harder for this. So there's such, as Brene Brown says, it is kind to be clear, you know, clear is kind. And, and, and understanding when we haven't been clear, when we have to say it again and say it maybe more, more directly is, is hard. I want to show compassion for this, but you know, it's easy for me to say, be radically candid, really hard for most people to do it in the moment. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Clear is kind. That's a key takeaway. So in the top right quadrant, the radical candor, we have things like asking for criticism or asking for feedback, right? Then you also have offering specific, sincere, kind, clear criticism, and then gauging how well it lands and then adjusting accordingly. So you're, t- you're speaking about that right now. Talk to me about asking for criticism. Yeah. And by the way, there's another step. So you solicit criticism, you give praise, and then you give criticism. And you want to focus on the good stuff. Okay. I think one of the one of the things that, and this is, this is a problem with my book. Uh, I don't think I focused enough on the importance of praise. Uh, so, so I want to correct that here. But the, the reason why soliciting, the, and this is the radical candor order of operations, the reason why soliciting criticism at first is so important. The first reason is that you want to remember that radical candor is a dialogue, not a monologue. And sometimes we have sort of held on to things a little bit longer than we should have. And when you start by soliciting criticism, it helps you get away from kind of like the fundamental attribution error. Sometimes we think, oh, this person is doing this thing because they don't care. This person is doing this thing because they're sloppy. Or we blame their personality for the problem. And that's never helpful. So you want to make sure that you're remembering that you might be doing something that is contributing to this situation. So you want to solicit feedback. Another reason why soliciting feedback is important is that it gives you an opportunity to lead by example, to show that you really view criticism as a gift, to establish that that you have a growth mindset and you think if you can know what you're doing wrong, then you can make it right, you know? And if you don't know, then you can't make it right. Um, and so so criticism is not like, it's, it, it's not a judgment on some sort of fixed trait. It's to help you grow. That's why you want to get it. And, and, you know, the third and probably most important reason why you want to solicit criticism is that it does, in fact, help you grow. If you don't know, as my son's baseball coach said, if, if you don't know what you're doing wrong, you can't do the right thing. So you want to start by soliciting feedback. And there's four things to keep in mind when you're soliciting feedback. You want to think about your question, how are you going to ask? Because if you say, do you have any feedback for me? I can already tell you the answer. Oh no, everything's fine. You know, nobody except your teenage children, if you have those, they really do want to give you criticism, but nobody else in your life wants to give you criticism. And so, so you want to think about how you're going to ask. The question that I like to ask is, what can I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? But don't write down that question, because if you sound like Kim Scott and not like yourself, then people won't believe you want the answer. So how are you going to ask? I was working with Krista Quarles when she was the CEO of OpenTable, and she said, Kim, I could never imagine your words coming out of my mouth. She said, the way I like to ask is, tell me why I'm wrong. 
okay, that's fine too. (laughs) But you want to make sure that you're asking in a way that feels authentic to you and that you're paying attention to the impact that the way you're asking has on others. So you need to adjust. Again, it gets measured not at your mouth, but at the listener's ear. So for example, when I started the company Radical Candor with Jason Rosoff, he told me, Kim, I hate your go-to question. It's too open-ended. You need to ask me something more specific. You're putting too much of the work on me. And so with Jason, I try to say in that meeting, I was trying to do this, you know, how did I do? Or in the meeting, uh, you know, how many times did I interrupt you? Uh, Not did I interrupt you, but how many times, you know? Uh, So you want to make sure that it can't be answered with, oh no, everything was fine kind kind of thing. So that's the first thing. So if everyone who's listening to us can take a moment and write down their go-to question and whom they're going to ask it of and when they're going to ask it. If you do that right now, our time today is going to be very well spent. So just that point, soliciting. Now, asking the question is obviously not enough, though. <laughs> you also have to, to you know, make sure that you're embracing the discomfort. Because no matter how good your question is, the other person doesn't want to answer it. So you close your mouth, count to six. I only made it to three just there, and I can tell you are getting very uncomfortable. Uh, So six seconds is a really long time. Almost no one can endure six full seconds of silence. So you want to make sure that you're, you're really listening. And then once they do say something, you know, now you've dragged this poor soul out on a conversational limb they never wanted to go on. So once they do say something, you want to make sure that you are listening with the intent to understand, not to respond. Uh, So ask some follow-up questions. Uh, Sort of, if you can do it without sounding sarcastic, repeat back what you think you've heard uh, to make sure that you, sometimes we hear the exact opposite of what the other person is trying to say. So make sure that you really are, are focusing on making sure that you understood. And that's a way of managing your own defensiveness because it's normal to feel defensive when someone has given you feedback. Uh, that it doesn't mean you're, you're a lesser mortal or shut down to feedback. It just means you're human and that's all part of this game. So it's okay to feel defensive. It's not okay to take your defensiveness out on the other person. So you want to manage your own emotions. And then last but not least, the fourth step to, to soliciting feedback is to make sure that you are rewarding the candor when you get it. It's not enough to say thank you for the feedback. Fix the problem if you agree with the, the feedback. If you disagree with the feedback, be open about that. I mean, take a moment to look for what they the other person said that you can agree with to demonstrate that you were listening and that you're not shut down to feedback. But then have an open and respectful explanation of why you disagree. You, and you may have to do it their way anyway. You, you, at some point, you want to listen, challenge, commit. But you want to share your thinking with the other pe- person in a really respectful mm. way. Oh my gosh, so helpful. Really, and like you said, to start off with the what question are you going to ask and think of whom you're going to ask it to, and then to have the discipline of practicing what comes next because for some, it's like, I just had the courage yeah. to say it. I brought you out on the limb and now I just want to scurry on back. 
<laughs> to safety because it feels yeah. awkward out there. Yeah. But really, like the only way we can grow is to stretch ourselves. And I love the whole idea of starting with yourself and knowing that if we don't ask the question in a smart way, we're not going to get any value. People will just say, no, no, everything's fine. There's nothing you can do to change yeah. how we work together. And now, yeah. now it just feels like... Yeah, flat. yeah. Just if, and if, yeah, if you, if you get that response, like try saying something like, look, I know I'm not perfect. You know I'm not perfect. The thing you can do that can really help me is tell me what I'm doing wrong so I can make it right. Mm-hmm. You know. So what are some other mistakes that people make with feedback? What I have noticed is people tend, like you use the fundamental attribution error. Sometimes we use judgment language, like you seem off or you seem like you're not yourself yeah. or you seem stressed. Like what practical advice could you give on the kind of feedback we're offering people? Yeah. So I think that you want to make sure that when you go into these conversations, that first of all, you're focusing on the good stuff, that feedback is as much about praise. In fact, it's more about praise than it is about criticism. Like your job, especially if you're a leader, but no matter who you are in the organization, your job is to paint a picture of what's possible. And praise is is a better way to do that than, than criticism. You want people to do more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff. And and so you want to you want to focus you want to focus on the good stuff. Uh, feedback is the, the kind of in general I joke I say if it's the kind of feedback you'd give to a dog it's not good feedback. But there is a good uh, puppy training uh, analogy to feedback which is if you're trying to house train your dog rubbing their nose in their poop when they go in your living room is not the right way to go because then they're just going to go behind the the couch, you know, where you can't even find it. So you want to, praise is way more effective. Uh, if you praise them loudly for going in the right place, uh, you're, you're going to have better results. So don't forget about praise. Now, whether it's a praise or a criticism conversation, you want to be, uh, here's, a, here's an acronym for you, hippie corn. So let's start with hip. Uh, you want to be humble. You, you don't want to say, you know, I'm going to tell you the truth, whether it's about praise or criticism. You're not the arbiter of what's good or bad. You're sort of, the reason I call it candor and not truth is that truth feels arrogant to me. But candor is sort of like, here's how I understand the, the situation. My I also want to know, mm-hmm. yeah, how you understand the situation. And you want to be, you know, confidently humble, <laughs> I would say. Uh, so, so you want to yeah. be, Confidently humble, that's H, the first H, humble. You want to state your intention to be helpful. Uh, Again, the purpose of praise is to tell people what to do more of. The purpose of criticism is to share your thoughts on what people ought to do less of. So, so, so you want to be, state your intention to be helpful. You want to do this right away. Don't let things pile up because then if you let them pile up, they have a tension, uh, a tendency of sort of going critical, you get increasingly mad. And then when you do finally say it, you maybe say it in not the best way. So you want to do it right away. And the before times I used to say, do it in person. Now I say, have these conversations synchronously. So uh, do it in the, you know, pick up the phone and call the person. Don't send a text. Don't send an email. You got, because you got to pay attention to how the other person is responding. Uh, You want to praise in public, criticize in private. And, and the last P of the HIP acronym is you don't want to give people either praise or criticism about their personality. For the same reason, 
my in the um story, my, my boss. If my boss had told me, you know, you're just you're stupid. The problem, Kim, here is you're stu-. that would not have been good feedback. But in the meeting, when you said um every third word, it made you sound stupid. Go visit the speech coach. That's not about my personality. That's corn. Context, observation, result, next step. And corn also applies equally to praise as it does to criticism. So in the meeting, when you offered both sides of the argument, you earned credibility. Do more of that, I think, is really can be really helpful. Uh, another thing when you're going into these conversations is to be aware of owning your side of the communication. So use more I pronouns and fewer you pronouns. I don't think I was clear is very different from saying, you're not listening to me. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, so, so try, 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 to, try to be cognizant of, of using I pronouns, not you pronouns. Oh my gosh, so helpful. I had a friend read me a text that she sent to another friend and she was saying, I mean, all I was asking for was time to get together. And she read me the text that she sent. And in it, it said, you, a lot of you, like you don't make time yeah. and you yeah. are not available yeah. and you're always. And I was like, oh, you know, it just, it's, it's yeah. so, we're so much more uh, astute at recognizing the flaws that other people yes. use. I don't know that I am as astute uh, catching myself yeah. making similar mistakes. That's a really important point. And that's why the first step in the radical candor order of operations is to solicit feedback. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, because it is, it's so much easier to notice mistakes that other people make than to notice one's own mistakes. And that's just, that's normal. I mean, it doesn't mean we're, uh, we're s- sort of not self-aware. It's, it's sort of normal psychology. Absolutely. And, you know, when you talked about the praise and focusing on the praise, I totally agree with that. And I had read a research study recently that said that we should offer six praise feedback comments to one criticism. I mean, what is your reaction to that? Do you think that that's a fair average? So there's research that says two times as much praise as credit. That's also called the feedback sandwich or a less polite term. Then there's five times, six times, seven times Mm -hmm. as much praise as criticism. And I think the way that I try to approach it is not by some kind of ratio. Because if you're trying to keep track of a ratio, you you wind up saying, oh, Kim, you know, I like your bookshelf, your presentation, everything you said was boring, but, you know, but your shirt is kind of cool. Like that doesn't make me feel any better. So you want to make sure that you're focused on the good stuff in a way that is really genuine that you remember that your praise is not just uh, something you have to do to get permission to criticize someone. Your praise is something you have to mean. Your praise needs to be specific and sincere. In fact, there was someone I worked with at Apple who said, Karen Saprell was her name. She, She used to say, ask people when we were teaching managing at Apple, how much time do you spend preparing to give criticism and how much time do you spend preparing to give praise? And it turned out people were spending way more time preparing to give criticism than praise, but it was just as important to get 
the praise right as it is to get the criticism right. And praise can go wrong, uh, which doesn't mean we shouldn't give it, but you should be aware, like make sure your praise doesn't sound patronizing. If it's something that you would say mm-hmm. to a dog, it's not good praise. Like good job is something you say to your dog who poops in the right place, mm-hmm. not to your employee who's just worked really hard on on something or your colleague or your boss. I mean, yeah. you, you want to make sure that that you're using that that your praise is humble, it's helpful, that you're offering it both in 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 public and in person. Um, that that you mm-hmm. are offering private praise is also okay. But the more public you can make it, the more it scales because then you're painting a picture of what good look looks like for everybody. Um, so mm-hmm. so and that you're not sort of offering personality attributes. Like it's no good. If you say to someone, you're a genius, like that doesn't really count as praise because uh, it doesn't tell them what to yeah, do. Yeah, rock star. Yeah. You're a rock star. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, doesn't- That's the current uh, kind of joke, right? Yes. Um, you know, there's so many things that uh, you're touching on that I want to cl- click through. But, you know, when, you, when you've when you been referring to dogs, it's reminding me of your Belvedere yes. story, which would be really helpful for our listeners to hear because I do think that sometimes people look at this, they understand why it's important, but then think, gosh, this is going to take so much time. Yeah. Yeah. So love to hear your, like the, the, the day that this all hit you. The origin story. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was, I was working in New York and I had just gotten a puppy and I adored this puppy. Her name was Belvedere and I loved her so much. I had never said a crossword to her. And as a result, she was totally out of control. So I was taking her for a walk one night and she jumped in front of a cab. I pulled her out of the way in the nick of time and uh, the cab sped by and I'm standing on the street corner with my heart in my throat because my dog has almost just died. And this man, a perfect stranger, looked at me and he said, I can tell you really love that dog. That was all he had to do to move up on the care personally dimension was just notice my humanity in the moment. He didn't need to know my children's names or take me out to lunch or anything like that. But just, I can tell you really love that dog. But he said to me, you're going to kill that dog if you don't teach her to sit. And he pointed at the ground, this kind of harsh gesture, and he said, sit. The dog sat. I had no idea she even knew what that meant. And I sort of looked up at him in amazement and he said, it's not mean, it's clear. And then he walked off, leaving me with words to live by. <laughs> and this yeah. really is, is the, the thing I try to keep top of mind. It's not mean if it's clear. Uh, because mm-hmm. it feels mean to offer that kind of feedback. And it also, the other thing about that story to remember is it took less than two minutes. It took like 30 seconds for him, this whole exchange. Mm -hmm. And it changed my whole life. And so these two-minute conversations, sometimes when I work with teams, we'll do uh, a feedback triangle. And people are astounded at how much you can accomplish in two minutes. So radical candor is fast. It's free. All it takes is enormous emotional discipline. And (laughs) That's that's that often, at least for me, is in short supply. Well, we get to practice every day. Yes. Right? that's that's yeah. how I look at this. We get we get an opportunity to practice every day, yes. and it's just an awesome thing. And something else that you were talking about about how we say something, and would you speak to your dog that way? And you know, it just leads me to your next book, your other book um, that 
we referenced already, which is just work. Mm-hmm. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on how, you know, you wrote Radical Candor and then that soon after you wrote Just Work. By the way, I got some Radical Candor on the title, Just Work, which is that it just didn't work. <laughs> uh, and so we're, we're coming out with a paperback. We're going to call it Radical Respect. Okay. Oh, uh, there so, you go. Because uh, it was like work justly would have been mm-hmm. maybe better. Pe- people thought I was saying just work all the time, which is yeah. not what I was trying to say with the title. Anyway, so I decided to write that book. I decided to write Just Work slash Radical Respect when I, shortly after Radical Candor came out, and I was giving a talk at a tech company in San Francisco. And the CEO of that company had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade, a person I like and respect enormously, and one of too few black women CEOs in tech or in any other sector, frankly. And when I finished giving the talk, she pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I'm excited to roll out Radical Candor. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture that I want. But I got to tell you, it's much harder for me to roll it out than it is for you. And she went on to explain to me that as soon as she would offer anyone, even the most compassionate, gentle criticism, she would get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. And as soon as she said it to me, I I realized four things at the same time. The first thing was that I had not been the kind of colleague I imagined myself to be. I had failed to be an upstander for her. I had failed even to notice the extent to which she had to show up unfailingly pleasant and cheerful in every meeting we had ever been in together, Mm -hmm. even though she had what to be ticked off about at work, as, as we all do. And then I realized that not only had I failed to notice the things that were happening to her as a black woman in the workplace, I had failed to notice the things that were happening to me as a, as a white woman. And I was in denial. I was pretending that a whole host of things were not happening to me that were, in fact, happening to me as a woman in tech. And the third thing that I realized was that I was most deeply in denial about the times when I was the person who was biased, when I was the person who caused harm. And I think this is, uh, you know, as a white woman, um, you, you know, you, you sort, sort of are the beneficiary of systemic advantage and, and, the, and the person harmed by systemic disadvantage at the same time. And, uh, and it, but it was, you know, I really wanted to think of myself as a person who did not cause harm. So that was hardest for me to come to grips with. And then last but not least, I realized as a leader, I imagined that I was creating these BS-free zones where everybody could do the best work of their lives and love working together. And I realized that I hadn't taken into account the way in which bias, prejudice, and bullying uh, are were preventing me and my team from creating the kind of environment that we all wanted. And so that was what caused me to write Mm. Just Work. And Just Work, or Radical Respect, as it will soon come to be known, is what happens when you optimize for collaboration rather than coercion, and you respect everybody's individuality instead of demanding conformity. So that's sort of Mm -hmm. what I mean by, by that. I love that. Thank you so much. I really learned a ton from that book. I so appreciate those four ahas that happened simultaneously and your willingness to share that with us because we can, I know I can relate, I'll speak for myself, but I think that similarly with that quadrant view, that just work, that justice work or that radical respect happens, like you're saying, when you 
aim for collaboration and you look for that individuality, you, you let people bring their, their best. And one of the things I love that you wrote in there was that, you know, very often we talk about that everybody should, um, you know, add to the culture, you know, this is a good yeah. culture ad and, uh, or culture fit rather. And then you yeah. talk about, let's be a culture ad, not a culture fit. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah. I think that, that often when we talk about culture, we talk about it in a way that, that allows culture to be like super highway for bias. And that's really dangerous because then, then our organizations <laughs> and our culture is not going to grow. It's not going to change. It's not going to adapt. And so, and this is something I borrowed from someone else. I didn't make this up, but I was reading a great article. We can put it in the show notes about how you want to make sure that you are looking for culture ad, not culture fit. Because very often when you say culture fit, the, the, without intending to, usually, people start thinking, oh, is this person like me? Do, uh, do I feel comfortable with this person? And what we really want is we want to hire people who are different from us so that we can mm-hmm. broaden our own perspective and, and, and improve the way that, that we work uh, and, and, and grow diverse. You're, you're not going to get a more diverse team if you're looking for culture fit. But if you're looking for culture ad, then then the diversity on your Mm -hmm. team will improve over time. Amazing. Yeah, we had a guest, H. Walker, during Pride Series last year, so June 2022. And the title of his episode is Adding Two Versus Fitting In. He said the same kind of thing. And he just talked about, (laughs) like, even for us to think about how are we contributing to our cultures? How are we adding another dimension? Um, And to be thoughtful about how, like, exactly what you're saying, how do we evolve if we're not looking for ways to add to. But if our culture is such that, yes, we in theory say that we want to add to or we want to bring in diversity, but we're really not prepared properly for that. We're not welcoming that that different perspective. So I think that whole idea that you say respect individuality and look at for what, you know, what do people contribute to the workplace just by being who they are. Yeah. Um, and that psychological safety associated with that. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's interesting not only to think it, it, sort of positive target identification. What do we want? We all want a place where, where and, and you, most people I've worked with assume that they're respecting individuality. Very few people think they're demanding conformity. And most people think they're optimizing for collaboration. Very few people set out to coerce their colleagues or even their employees. Like, I think there's pretty broad <laughs> broad spread understanding that command and control is not the best way to run a team. And uh, even, even in the military, mm-hmm. they, they talk about the need for this. <laughs> and, uh, and so the, the thing that's interesting, given that there's such broad, I think, and shared understanding that, that this is what we want, to think about what is it that moves us in the wrong direction. And I think the things that move us in the wrong direction are bias, prejudice, and bullying. And I think one of the reasons that these three problems uh, make themselves manifest so often is that we conflate them as though they're the same thing. And I think that beginning to separate out these problems will help us address them, help us fix the problems. So, so if, you, if you're faced with a big, hairy math problem, you know, you break it down into its parts. And I think the same thing with, uh, with, with unfairness at work. You want to break down what is causing work to be unfair. So I'm going to leave folks mm-hmm. with some very simple definitions, uh, overly simple, but useful in the moment. 
bias I define as not meaning it. It's basically just like a brain hiccup. We don't really believe the implications of what we said or did. Whereas prejudice is very different. Uh, it's not un- prejudice is not unconscious. It's a consciously held belief, usually reflecting some kind of stereotype that's both unfair and inaccurate. And bullying, there's usually not any real belief, conscious or unconscious at all. It's just being mean, trying to sort of dominate. So I think that thinking about those things differently and thinking about what we as individuals can do to respond to each and what we as leaders can do to respond to each can help Mm -hmm. us begin to put some wins on the board uh, in solving these problems. Absolutely. And and have more radical respect. The point. Yes. Yes. So at the end of every episode, we try to recap and give our listeners some tangible, practical things. You've given us so many. So my first bit of advice would be to listen to this again and take notes. Um, So a couple highlights is one is to use the I pronouns, right? To speak in I statements. Um, Two, to think about who you will give feedback to and how you will open up the conversation. What kind of question will you ask that's, that's reflective of your personality, but very clear and soliciting feedback for yourself to grow. And then I think focusing on the good stuff, focus on the positives and the praise And the last would be to be radically respectful. How can we seek ways to collaborate and really honor people for who they are? Anything else you would add to that, Kim? I think remembering the difference uh, between bias, prejudice, and bullying and ending the default to silence. Like if if you're suffering from Mm. those things, you get to choose your response. But if you want to be an upstander, you must intervene in some way. And if you're a leader, you've got to think about your systems and think about what you can do to prevent. And if you are the person who caused harm, which we all are from time to time, uh, you've got to acknowledge what you did wrong and make amends. So beautiful. Thank you for your generosity. Everything that you talk about is generous, right? These are ways in which we have to override our wanting to be safe and, you know, cowardice really uh, to be in service to other people. I so appreciate you, Kim. Thank you for being on ROG. Thank you for your generosity and for having me on the show. I loved our conversation. Me too. Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.